Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There are few people in history where a single sentence captures everything about them. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Alabama Governor George Wallace, populist, demagogue, bigot, is one of those rare people. His declaration of support for segregation in 1963 cemented him as the voice of white resistance in the 1960s. A lifelong Democrat, he was on the fringes of the Party of Civil Rights. Still, he ran for president four times and did surprisingly well with a vile cocktail of racism and rage. During his third run at the presidency, on May 15, 1972, Wallace was campaigning in the suburban community of Laurel, Maryland. Two months earlier, he shocked the political establishment, winning the Florida primary by opposing the Supreme Court-ordered policy of desegregation busing and attacking the, quote, pointy-headed intellectuals who fashioned it. He would win Tennessee and North Carolina, too, and appeared to be a serious contender to win the Democratic nomination despite his resistance to the civil rights movement. Among the several thousand people on hand that May spring day was a recent college graduate and young reporter named Karen Yingich. That was my first day of work at the Laurel News Leader. She arrived at work that morning and much to her surprise was told to cover Wallace's campaign rally. And I just thought it was going to be a small sleepy town to cover news stories. I didn't expect a national figure coming in and holding a campaign rally. It was a sunny and beautiful afternoon. Wallace spoke for more than 20 minutes, tapping into the dual vein of white racial resentment and the senselessness of busing. He concluded his speech by telling the crowd a vote for George Wallace is a vote for the average citizen. Wallace then took off his jacket, and began to shake hands with supporters and curious onlookers. So he walked down the stairs, and his wife, Cornelia, was with him. And then he just started shaking hands in the crowd, and we couldn't really see him at that time. And that's when the shots rang out. And everybody screamed and panicked and ran away from the stage area. I didn't run away. I tried to fight the crowd so I could get up forward to see what happened. And you could see Governor Wallace laying on the ground, and his wife, Cornelia, was hanging over him. Wallace had been shot five times in the chest and abdomen by a 21-year-old, blonde-haired drifter from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, named Arthur Bremer. As paramedics rushed to the site, Cornelia held Wallace in her arms as blood soaked her beige suit. Wallace was rushed to the hospital, and Bremer was immediately arrested. What happens next is a story you've never heard. Almost no one knows it. It's been overlooked and forgotten. Just one month before the Watergate break-in, the Wallace assassination attempt sets in motion a criminal plot that could have taken down President Richard Nixon before his henchmen had even entered the Watergate Hotel. But our story starts with George Wallace and his outsider campaign to be president. History may be written by the winners, 
But in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. God bless you, and God bless America. These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot but still changed how we see America. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born, but through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment, an age of jobs, and peace, and justice. These are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. This is the story of George Wallace, the segregationist. Born in 1919 in southeastern Alabama, George Wallace didn't start out as a race-baiting populace. He entered political life determined to champion the underdog, earning a reputation as a politician and judge who would treat both poor whites and blacks with respect. George Wallace started out as a uh, progressive politician in post-World War II Alabama. Until the mid-1950s, he was really regarded as part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, such as it was in Alabama. According to Wallace's biographer, Professor Dan Carter, the ambitious politician actively sought the support of the black community in his early political career even volunteering to serve on the Tuskegee Board of Trustees, one of the country's most prestigious African-American colleges. Historian Luke Nichter says Wallace started out as a hybrid Democrat. You know, he doesn't really fit in these kind of clean paradigms between, you know, Southern conservative, Northern liberal. Well, I think Wallace saw himself, you know, as a, as a traditional uh, Southern Democrat. And that didn't mean conservative. I mean, if you look at his spending record in Alabama, really, uh, he embraced the majority of the New Deal and, the, and the, the welfare state. The moderate and sometimes progressive Wallace, however, didn't survive his own ambitions. He later learned a crucial lesson after running and losing the election for governor in 1958 to a hardline segregationist who had the backing of the Ku Klux Klan The only people in the middle of the road were uh, dead armadillos, as they say in Texas, and yellow stripes, and that's it. Uh, There was no place for a politician to be a moderate or a middle-of-the-roader in the 1950s. So he switched. Following that failed bid to be Alabama's governor, Wallace set out to reinvent his political brand, famously telling aides, John Patterson, who was his opponent, outniggered me, and I'm never going to be outniggered again. Gone was the George Wallace who worked with the NAACP and who had spoken soberly about what needed to be done. In his next run for governor four years later, Wallace deployed fiery political speeches dripping with sarcasm and ridicule. Maybe we might think it's not very funny today, but in the 1950s, his audience certainly did. After easily winning the governorship in 1962, Wallace moved to fulfill his campaign promise to defend segregation at all costs even if it meant defying court orders. At the time, Alabama was the lone state in the nation with totally segregated schools. Federal courts had ruled repeatedly Alabama must integrate, 
Wallace refused, remembers former New York Times reporter Drummond Ayers. Nobody else went that down the path that George Wallace went down when it came to schools and integration. On June 11, 1963, Wallace staged a dramatic political standoff with the Kennedy administration. Standing in the door of the Foster Auditorium at the University of Alabama, Wallace blocked the entry of two black students, Vivian Malone and James Hood, that a federal judge had ordered be allowed to enroll in the all-white university. But he learned, as the cliche goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And even though he had given in then to the federal government and to the demands for school desegregation at the University of Alabama, what people saw on television was him defiantly standing against the, uh, the national government. And that's really what put him on the map nationally. Wallace's pro-segregation stance had made him a pariah within the National Democratic Party, which had spent the last decade fighting for civil rights. But his opposition to civil rights had also made him a hero to many, both above and below the Mason-Dixon line. He could be a charming, and he could be downright dangerous. After failing to win the Democratic nomination in 1964 against Lyndon Johnson, Wallace announced a third-party run for the presidency in 1968. His announcement, I think, was on page 23 of the New York Times. 1968 was as traumatic a year as any in American history. The country was torn apart by anti-war protests, civil rights battles, and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. It felt as though America was coming apart at the seams. Draft card burnings became common, and the chant of, hell no, we won't go, was the theme of the protest generation. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Wallace campaigned that summer on a race-based populist platform of states' rights and law and order. And it's a sad commentary when you cannot walk on the streets or in the parks in the large cities of our country. And if you go out of this building tonight and somebody knocks you in the head... The person who knocks you in the head is out of jail before you get to the hospital. He ran as an outsider and railed against communists, Democrats, Republicans, and long-haired hippies. These are the kind of folks that people are sick and tired of in this country all over the United States. Wallace's campaign events were chaotic, violent, and regularly interrupted by protesters who chanted Sig Heil and mockingly raised their hands in the Nazi salute. Wallace has the courage to stand up for America. Give him your support. But blue-collar and Southern voters flocked to him and his rhetoric vowing to stand up for America. They've never paid any attention to anything that the people of your state and my state did or said in the past. They ignored us and looked down their nose at us and called us everything under the sun. And I'm sick and tired of it and I resent it. By the fall of 1968, both the Republican and Democratic nominees Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey began to co-opt some of his message. A longtime progressive liberal, Humphrey, gave a speech on law and order, while Nixon appealed to middle-class whites who were angry about desegregation. Wallace hoped to prevent both Nixon and Humphrey from winning a majority in the Electoral College and thus throwing the election into the House of Representatives, where anything could happen. It almost worked. 
running as an independent with virtually no financial support except from small contributions, he had come within a few thousand votes of throwing the election into the House of Representatives. Nixon won the election, but Wallace did surprisingly well for a third-party candidate, winning more than 10 million votes in five southern states, claiming 46 electoral votes. One of the best showings by a third-party candidate ever. I mean, Wallace's 10 million votes denied Nixon the ability to carry a number of southern states that Eisenhower and Nixon carried in 52 and in 56. Well, I think Nixon saw Wallace as a, as a symbol. Uh, he was uh, a symbol at a major turning point politically in the South. Wallace would head back to Alabama and run for governor again in 1970. Almost immediately after being reelected, he started campaigning for his next presidential run in 1972. So too would Richard Nixon. President Nixon consider uh, Governor Wallace to be among his foremost contenders you know, in terms of political rivals and uh, even adversaries. Richard Nixon concluded at the end of the 1968 campaign that his greatest threat to re-election in 1972 would come from another third-party run by George Wallace. Nixon was determined to prevent Wallace from once again threatening his election. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, millennials, entitled brats, Gen Z, ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face to face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available now. Wallace lost more than just the election in 1968. His wife of 25 years, Laura Lean, then serving as Alabama's governor, died of cancer during Wallace's presidential campaign. When he returned home to Alabama after the campaign, he was a widower and a single father of four. He soon met and married Cornelia Snively, a water skiing champion and local beauty. She was from an old Alabama political family and very savvy, very beautiful. Cornelia became one of his closest political advisors. She helped, or at least tried to, modernize Wallace's personal and political message. There was a lot of good old boy in him. He had a reputation as looking like a deep South mortician with his black suits and his brill cream back hair. Well, she got him the latest fashions and uh, got a hairstylist for him. As, uh, as one of his advisors said, uh, prettied them up or gussied him up. With a new stylish look and dynamic younger wife, some began to compare with the Wallaces to John and Jackie Kennedy, dubbing Alabama the Camelot of the South, which was probably a bit of a stretch, but it highlights the impression they were making. Cornelia also encouraged them to tone down his inflammatory rhetoric heading into the 1972 campaign. The idea was more political message, fewer riots. Wallace comes across as somebody who's angry, 
who represents uh, the forgotten American, as Nixon thought he should alone represent. Uh, But he was not the same candidate that he was in 1968. As 1972 approached, Wallace was weighing his campaign options, run as a long shot in the Democratic Party, or try once again as an underfunded third-party candidate. This second option terrified Nixon, who feared a Wallace third-party run would damage his own re-election prospects. Nixon saw that Wallace was kind of positioned in the right time in the right place while the South was shifting. I think Nixon wasn't quite sure where it was going to shift uh, in the next election, his re-election in 72. And so he treated Wallace very seriously and very carefully. At the same time, the IRS was investigating Wallace and his brother, Gerald. Richard Nixon's Justice Department had been investigating Wallace's brother, who was a fixer and incredibly corrupt. For most of George Wallace's political career, Gerald had been the money man, not only raising funds for his brother's political ambitions, but also for himself, often from state contractors. Think of him as a Mr. 10%. Wallace's financial dealings, particularly Gerald's part ownership in an asphalt company with significant state contracts, had caught the eye of federal agents. There were definite conversations between the Nixon people and the Wallace people about whether or not George Wallace's brother, Gerald, would be prosecuted. In May of 1971, President Nixon traveled to Alabama to take part in the groundbreaking ceremony of the Tennessee Tom Big B Waterway. The 253-mile canal is the largest man-made waterway ever built in the U.S. During the trip, George and Gerald met with the Nixon team, including Postmaster General Winton Blunt, a fellow Alabaman. And a line of dialogue was opened between the two camps. Seven months later, the Justice Department dropped its investigation of Gerald Wallace. Shortly afterwards, George Wallace announced he would forego a third-party campaign and instead run as a Democrat. Running as a Democrat, it was like stepping into the Democratic Party, a pyromaniac with a a gasoline can full of gasoline to throw on the fire. Given Nixon's fear of Wallace and the president's affinity for dirty politics, it seems more than likely this wasn't some coincidence and a deal had been cut. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. Brown versus the Board of Education set in motion the modern civil rights movement, and opposition to it launched George Wallace's political career. By 1972, the issue of desegregation was still front and center in American politics. Just a year before, the Supreme Court unanimously upheld efforts to bus white students to minority schools, and Black and Latino students to white schools. The forced busing policy was controversial and divisive. George Wallace seized on the issue early in the Democratic primary. This matter that they've come up with of busing little children to achieve racial balance is the most asinine, atrocious, callous thing I've ever heard of in the United States. The party of civil rights was once again facing a ferocious internal battle between Wallace and its more liberal wing. The other Democrats were like deer frozen in the headlamps of an oncoming car. It was extraordinarily difficult for them to take a position because they knew that busing was extremely unpopular. 
48 years ago, like today, African Americans were a key voting bloc in the Democratic primary. So neither Senator George McGovern nor former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, Wallace's main competition for the nomination, could afford to alienate them. However, by supporting forced busing, they turned away white, working-class voters. Many of these disillusioned whites turned to Wallace as he railed against government policies designed to help blacks. Ultimately, with George Wallace, it always comes back uh, to the race element. Essentially, he was playing to people who felt uh, that they weren't getting all out of life that they should be getting. Wallace not only used forced busing as an issue to pressure his own Democratic opponents, but he turned up the heat on Nixon as well. I believe that if I win the Florida primary, that Mr. Nixon himself will step in and stop the busing of school children throughout the United States. Wallace would coast to victory in Florida on the back of his anti-busing position, winning every county in the state but Miami-Dade. You look at the voting returns and a heck of a lot of middle-class, upper-middle-class suburbanites voted for Wallace. The force busing galvanized a wave of new supporters. Although most white Americans outside the South may not have been enthusiastic about segregation or the kind of raw racism in the South, they were not the least bit enthusiastic about busing. Wallace's victory put Nixon, the wannabe unifier, in a difficult political position in the spring of 1972. Professor Dan Carter explains Nixon's political dilemma. And there was a lot of discussion with his aides in which uh, they said, look, you've got to get on the right side of the busing issue. And he said no. Two days after Wallace's dominating victory in Florida, President Nixon realized the potential of busing as an issue and quickly seized it as his own during a primetime nationwide address. I am opposed to busing for the purpose of achieving racial balance in our schools. I am sending a special message to the Congress tomorrow urging immediate consideration and action. First, I shall propose legislation that would call an immediate halt to all new busing orders by federal courts, a moratorium on new busing. So he ended up, uh, in effect, uh, dancing to uh, George Wallace's tune, but he didn't have any choice at that point. For the next month, on the strength of his opposition to busing and resistance to elites, Wallace would do well in Democratic primaries across the country, notching a string of second-place showings in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Indiana. Before the race turned to Maryland, Wallace secured outright victories in Tennessee and North Carolina. By the time he arrived in Maryland, Wallace's campaign was hitting on all cylinders with a politically divisive issue that supercharged the grievances of white America. As he finished the second of his two campaign rallies on that fateful May day in Maryland, Wallace was shot by Arthur Bremer. George Wallace was shot down this afternoon as he campaigned in Maryland, not far from Washington. Just as Wallace's insurgent campaign was gaining steam, it ended as violently as his rhetoric encouraged. He would survive the assassin's bullet, but the shooting would trigger a criminal conspiracy that was concocted by the President of the United States of America. The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. 
Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUPodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family. got a problem. You heard about Wallace? Shortly after the shooting, Nixon and his aides, including Chief of Staff H.R. Halderman, Deputy Communications Director Kenneth Clawson, and White House Counsel Charles Colson, are heard on the White House tapes talking about Wallace. You don't realize the forces this could let loose in this country, you know. I mean, this fellow is a goddamn demagogue, a hate monger, and he could let loose horrible forces. The White House is desperate for any information about the shooter. The key thing now is the identity of the assailant and, right. and all the particulars on him right. before they start putting it out to the press. What happens over the next few hours, though, is the start of a disturbing and little-known criminal conspiracy that is also a remarkable foreshadowing of the Watergate break-in that led to Nixon's downfall. But we have got to get a hold of this thing. You understand, the record is being made now. Let me back up for a second. You see, Nixon not only wanted to win in 1972, but he also wanted to win with a landslide electoral college victory. Nixon saw himself as a unifier of America. He was going to end the war in Vietnam. He was going to bring Americans together. I know that seems hard to believe looking back, but that was how he planned to run that 1972 campaign. Wallace's shooting terrified Nixon. He feared Bremer might have ties to Nixon's re-election campaign and that the media would try to blame the Republican Party. Oh, I think the guy, the guy has to be a nut of some kind. I just hope he's a left-wing nut, not a right-wing nut. They didn't know anything about it. Nixon was, was terrified that it would turn out that this guy, Arthur Bremer, maybe had been one of his supporters. And nothing could have been more disastrous for Nixon. So we are less than six months out from Nixon's re-election. Uh, so I think he's absolutely concerned, not just the stories that week in the media, but what are the potential long-term themes that come out of this and might resonate? Driven by fear and paranoia, Nixon repeatedly tells his staff to lie to the press and to say that Bremer was a supporter of the likely Democratic nominee, George McGovern, and liberal stalwart Senator Ted Kennedy. Sometime later in the evening, a furious Nixon raised it again. Can we pin this on one of theirs? Just say it was a supporter of McGovern and Kennedy. Now just put that out. Just say you have it on unmistakable evidence. Screw the record. Just say he was a supporter of that and that and put it out. Just say we have it. We have it. And so all of a sudden, when this potential spotlight is enlarged on Wallace, a potential challenger on Nixon's right, I think Nixon has to divert his attention very quickly to what this could mean for his own political fortunes. But lying to the press about Bremer was only the start. Richard Nixon and Charles Colson came up with another plan, a criminal plan, to plant pro-McGovern literature in Arthur Bremer's Milwaukee apartment. The audio is hard to understand, I know. But have a listen. 
and Professor Carter will explain what you're hearing afterwards. This is what's so astonishing about the attempted assassination of Wallace. Within two hours, Charles Colson, Nixon's advisor, and Nixon, feverishly talking continuously, came up with a plan to send a former CIA operative to Milwaukee, which is where Arthur Bremer's home was, the would-be assassin, and plant McGovern materials in Arthur Bremer's apartment. That former CIA operative was E. Howard Hunt. You might know him from another criminal conspiracy, Watergate. Hunt, along with G. Gordon Liddy, helped plan and carry out the break-in of the Democratic National Committee just a month later. Hunt wrote in his 1974 autobiography, Undercover, that Colson asked him to fly to Milwaukee and break into Bremer's apartment to plant evidence. Hunt said he was skeptical he could get past authorities watching the apartment, but that Colson was insistent he try. Hunt packed a bag which included, get this, his CIA-issued disguise kit, and began to head to the airport to catch the last flight to Milwaukee. Right before he was set to leave, his trip was called off. Just as he's getting ready to get on the plane, they learn from the head of the FBI that FBI agents on their own have seized the apartment and locked it up. And so there's no way then to be able to plant the evidence. Think about this plot. The Nixon White House was attempting to interfere in a federal investigation and obstruct justice to help Nixon's re-election effort. When they're planning this break-in, they don't know if Wallace will survive or if there is any larger conspiracy behind his assassination attempt. Nixon didn't care. He only saw the 1972 election, not a potential assassination conspiracy. That was how desperate Nixon was to gain a fleeting advantage over McGovern. Because I think it would have been so devastating uh, to realize that you have the president of the United States engaging in this uh, extraordinary conspiracy to uh, destroy his opponent. This virtually unknown conspiracy was criminal and reckless and orchestrated from the Oval Office. It all sounds a little familiar, right? George Wallace would spend the rest of his life paralyzed and in a wheelchair. He would run for president unsuccessfully in 1976 and was elected governor of Alabama for two more terms after a shooting. The one-time face of segregation tried later in life to distance himself from his previous stances on race. I believe it was in the best interest of white and black uh, to be uh, in a segregated school system. But I was wrong. Wallace even asked the black church for forgiveness shortly before his death in 1998. Wallace, it seems, was uncomfortable with the legacy he had spent decades building. The political reality was, in the 1980s, he needed black voters in order to win elections. In the 20th century, there really was no politician quite like George Wallace. With his Stand Up for America mantra and his states' rights ideology, 
Wallace's visceral populism tapped into white America's anxieties about race and the decline of the country. These themes would continue to be the flashpoint of American politics long after he stepped away from view. George Wallace lays out many of the divisive social issues that come to dominate American politics. Modern backlash populism originated with Wallace and influenced politicians from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan to Pat Buchanan to Donald Trump. The temptation has always been to use the Wallace message to drive these social wedges, whether it's about religion or whether it's about race or whether it's about ethnicity, to mobilize your supporters, to create the kind of fear that Wallace always tried to create in his audience. It's been said Reagan tried to domesticate the Wallace crowd, only to have Donald Trump unleash them. I see a lot of Wallace in him, and I just don't mean racism. It's the way Wallace could play a crowd, and it's the way Trump can play a crowd. And they were both good at playing crowds. Like Trump, Wallace tapped into a dark part of America's psyche and liberated it. Them coming up across the border and so forth. That smacks of George Wallace. It's the same sort of play that Trump is using. It's them, them, them. But for all of his fist-pounding and bellicose racial rhetoric, outside of Alabama, Wallace lost elections. A lot of them. The civil rights movement has largely won the day in America. We are slowly moving towards that more perfect union that the Founding Fathers described in the preamble of the Constitution. Wallace's only political success was standing up and fighting, not overcoming and succeeding. Wallace promised revenge, but not much more than that. He may have said the things some whites were thinking, but in terms of electoral politics, there weren't enough whites thinking the things he was saying for Wallace to win. You've been listening to Long Shots. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Dan Carter, Karen Yangich, Drummond Ayers, and Professor Luke Nichter. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was J.C. Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Blue Note for the Long Shots theme song, aptly called Linger. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosine. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Karamis, who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Karamis is a leader in creative, strategy, and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, the team at Karamis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you're in luck, because there are seven more stories just like this batshit crazy one. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Good Pods app, and recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell. Thank you. Thank you.